Larry Bird's not walking through that door. We're talking about practice. Not a game, not a game, not a game. We're talking about practice. It's my team. It's my quarterback. A kick. It is. Good. 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 To be the man, you gotta beat the man. The 2 1. Swung line drive left field. One run is in. Here's Kevin Green. This is the Powers on Sports Podcast. Welcome back to the Powers on Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Powers, down here in Tampa, Florida. It is Labor Day week. We are heading into week one of the college football season. We had a few college games over the last week, over last weekend, but the full-blown college football schedule will get started here this Thursday night. So again, Lots of anticipation heading into the weekend, some good matchups and such, and uh, we are going to continue our college football preview with the Pac-12 with Matt Zemick, the editor of the of Trojan Wire, who covers all things USC and the Pac-12. He's very knowledgeable on, on again, lots of different things in the, around the college football world, so we're going to talk to Matt again, and we're also going to talk to Chris Bond from accnation.net. Chris, uh, Chris covers Florida State and the ACC, so we're going to talk all things ACC as well. We're going to give you a preview, a breakdown within each conference. We're going to give you some conference title predictions, some new coaching situations, and all the rest with our college football preview. But before we get to Matt Zemick, I want to talk for just a couple of minutes. It's also a big week in the NFL they're having it's cut down week. They're cutting rosters to 53. Practice squads are getting created and all that. And the big news so far this week is Cam Newton has been released by the New England Patriots, opening the door for Mac Jones to start from day one, taking the reins. And one thing I mentioned early, early in the summer, uh, as as training camp uh, commenced, you were gonna see roster decisions. Uh, how, be made on these teams, and you will see it throughout these cutdowns based on guys that have not gotten vaccinated. And Cam Newton, if you recall, had a vaccination issue where he did not—he was not vaccinated. He tested positive for COVID, missed about eight or nine days of training camp. Um, and I really believe that Bill Belichick, as he has done in the past with guys like Richard Seymour, Lawyer Malloy, Chandler Jones. He decided to cut bait with Cam Newton early. You know, to me, I mean, if if if, if, if you were going to start Mac Jones, it was going to be tough, in my opinion, to keep Cam Newton as a backup. Not that he wouldn't have been a uh, good soldier and all that, but they, they they're two different styles of quarterback. You know, they still remember they do have Brian Hoyer on the roster who can serve as the backup. Stidham is on uh, is injured, but should be back at some point this year. Can be the third string guy, Jared Stidham. So they're. They're kind of going away from the running, any version of the running quarterback, uh, you know, thing that, that they that they used last year. Also, Cam Newton is just not very accurate. Bottom line is he's not accurate enough in a Josh McDaniels, Bill Belichick type system. They like precision in the passing game. Mac Jones has shown that he can handle 
majority of, of what uh, the, the, the responsibilities of the quarterback position so far. He played pre, he's played pretty well in the preseason, has shown flashes of brilliance, and he really hasn't been disastrous at all. Um, obviously, he'll continue to grow into the position with the Patriots, um, but a big move out of Foxborough on Tuesday morning with the release of Cam Newton. So it'll be interesting to see what Cam Newton's status is in the league, if if somebody will pick him up. Uh, I, I would imagine somebody will pick him up as a backup. Uh, I don't see a starting role out there for Cam at any point, but I, I do think you will see Cam Newton back in the league potentially. In a, you know, maybe in a place like Washington with Ron Rivera, who knows him very well. Uh, maybe in a place like Baltimore, who would where Cam can be a, a mentor, a mentor to Lamar Jackson, also can can run some of the same style of offense that Baltimore likes to run. So keep your eyes out for those two spots for Cam Newton. Um, but again, cut down day, fifty three men. Again, you'll see a lot of transactions here in the next uh, on Tuesday, Wednesday of Thursday and Thursday of this week as we head into prep prep week for week one of the National Football League, the Sunday after Labor Day, with obviously the Buccaneers and the Cowboys kicking off on the Thursday, September 9th after Labor Day uh, as well, kicking off the season here in Tampa uh, as the world champions will celebrate in Raymond James Stadium. Um, so, some NF, again, just some quick NFL notes, a quick NFL thought for you as we head into the Pac-12 preview with Matt Zemick of USA Today's Trojan Wire. So enjoy our conference previews of the Pac-12 and the ACC. All right, welcome back to our conference preview special podcast. We are on to the Pac-12. We're heading out west. We're going to talk all things Pac-12. We're going to talk, um, you know, Oregon. We're going to talk the, the L.A. schools. We're going to talk possible realignment, the alliance, the alleged alliance with the Big Ten and the ACC. And we're more than, uh, and we've got my man from the West Coast, Matt Zemick, back with us. He's the editor of Trojan Wire. He covers all things USC athletics, and obviously it's football time of the year. So welcome back to the podcast, Matt. Jason, thanks for having me. It's always fun to come on. All right. Awesome. 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 Less than two weeks, less than two weeks to go till we, till we kick it off. All right. Let's, let's get right into it. Talk to me about this alleged alliance between the, the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the ACC. Tell me what you know about it and kind of what do you think the, the pros and cons are from the Pac-12 perspective? So it seems as though this is not really about scheduling games. And that's that's the main thing to emphasize, not about scheduling games. Uh, it's more about having votes in the room. And this is like a, the, a sports, a college sports governance issue uh, to be able to vote down what the SEC <laughs> wants to do. Uh, right. That that's really the main thing. And so uh, being able to put the brakes on this 12 team playoff plan, which really is, it's, you know, it's a surprise to me. I mean, I can I can certainly see the politics of it, you know, th that the SEC getting five at-large teams in, kind of a strong-arm move, and the working group from June, which, and here's an interesting point, Jason, you know, Larry Scott was speaking on behalf of the Pac-12 in June, 
even though George Klyavkov was there. Scott was still speaking, even though he was out the door. And even though this pl playoff plan was not going to be during Scott's tenure, Scott was still speaking. And that struck me as very odd at the time. And you'll notice that the Big Ten and also the ACC have very new conference commissioners. commissioners. So, yeah. so those three, those three new commissioners, it's like, hey, we're the new guys on the block. We're going to assert ourselves. We're going to show right away that we're not going to be kicked around. And it's instructive that Bob Bowlesby of the Big 12 is in this in-between place because he's not the SEC, but he's not a young pup who's new to this. Yeah. So like they're saying, Bob, you know, you're, you're past due. You're out of date. You're obsolete. You know, but like the three young power five commissioners have clearly said, we need to form our power circle. And we all band together, three of us, not just two, we have enough votes to vote down uh, the SEC and any, any coalition partners right. the SEC might be able to get in terms of votes in the room. It, all, it feels like Congress, but that really seems to be the play. And so, this, again, the surprising part is that I thought, you know, we'd have a playoff in 2023. It was going to be fast-tracked. Like, you're not going to be able to get out of this. But maybe now that's going to happen. Um, but, but the surprising thing is simply that these athletic departments, they need the money. You know, so they need that money sooner rather than later. So does the Pac-12 really want to delay a 12-team playoff until 2026? It can use that playoff cash. Right. If we stay at four playoff teams through 2025 and the 12-year playoff deal that we're currently on, Pac-12 is not going to get that money. I mean, not maybe one year, yeah, but not one. most of those years. So, right. so that that's that's the real mystery here. Is that is there a way for the Pac-12, Big Ten, and ACC to redo the 12-team playoff plan, but still push it through? Maybe, but right now it really seems to be the play that they want to postpone the playoff and they want to have Fox because Fox, you know, televises Pac-12 and Big Ten games. The ACC, of course, is an ESPN conference, but so that's kind of a tricky political thing all its own right. over there on an island. But the Pac-12 and Big Ten in particular, they really seem to want uh, to get it to where Fox is potentially the, the carrier of the playoff down the line. But so that, that's the, that and not starting the playoff in 2023 – that's really the head-scratching element of this because they need the money, and the Pac-12 needs those playoff appearances and playoff games. This works against that. So that's really what, what I'm interested in in terms of what's next in this process. But it's they clearly do want to put the brakes on the SEC getting five right. uh, at-large bids in the playoff, which was the whole reason for Oklahoma and Texas to be there. And that's the complicating factor, that if, that if you have a four-team playoff, with Oklahoma and Texas in the SEC, well, then Oklahoma's really screwed, you know, because right. Oklahoma made the move because it knew it would be able to get playoff access, no problem in a, in a 12 team field. But now, if that gets blown up, Oklahoma's going to have a time. I mean, Oklahoma's still going to make some money, but it's still, but it's not going to, it's going to lose prestige because it won't be in the playoff because Alabama is going to muscle the Sooners out of that spot most years. Yeah. And, and, and I definitely see, I, I think in the end, I think the playoff will stay at eight, you know, 10 to 12 teams, probably closer to 12. And I think Fox and ESPN will split those games, those playoff package games. There'll be a way to, again, you want to feed both entities since they're so, you know, so 
They contribute so much revenue. They're going to feed both of those entities in these playoff games. Hell, you got to think 12 teams is 11 playoff games. They're going to find a way to split those games up between Fox and ESPN. That's a great, that's a great point, Jason, because that way you still have a 12 team playoff, but you get Fox in on it. And if you get Fox in on it, then that way the PAC 12 and big 10 inventory under Fox, Fox has an incentive to continue to promote that, which definitely helps the PAC 12 and the big 10. Great point. And I think you'll, and I think you'll see some Alliance football scheduling wise between the PAC 12 and the big 10 because of the Rose bowl Alliance. So I think you'll, and you've seen over the years, Oregon's played Ohio State and some of these other West Coast UCLA USC has played some of these big 10 teams I think you'll see some of that and I think you'll see a Clemson go play a USC every once in a while or a Clemson goes plays Oregon I think that'd be a pretty cool cross-country rival not rival but but inner 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 league game that you could see from time to time very possibly since uh you know the, um, Las Vegas is going to be right. most likely the new Pac-12 headquarters in a few years. I mean, they're in San Francisco right now, but it's well known that the the rent that Larry Scott uh, racked up was very exorbitant. There's a lot of uh, agreement throughout the athletic directors, presidents, and other stakeholders in the Pac-12 conference that we need to move somewhere else. Las Vegas is the natural place. It was going to host the Pac-12 championship game last year, but then the pandemic happened. So Las Vegas is with the Raiders you know, brand new stadium that's supposed to be the host of this year's Pac-12 title game. So everyone in the Pac-12 thinks Las Vegas is going to be the future host uh, of Pac-12 HQ. And so you can put Las Vegas as that the the new neutral site locale for Labor Day weekend. You you have the Chick-fil-A games in Atlanta, you have the games in Arlington, and then you can now add Las Vegas to the mix. And that is exactly how you would get a Clemson USC or Clemson Oregon Florida State ACC Pac-12 showcase exactly that's how it all fits in what's funny is when you think about it Las Vegas is going to be the hub of the Pac-12 yet they don't have a team in Las Vegas there's not a there's not a Pac-12 team in Nevada which is kind of funny you know very, but you know, the Pac-12 was smart to move the basketball tournament from yes. Staples Center, where you know the, the the event just wasn't having any buzz. Moving it to Las Vegas was yes. an instant winner, and so that's going to be it. That ha- that proved to be the catalyst for more movement of Pac-12 activities of all kinds right. to Las Vegas. Absolutely, it's funny. And again, same same deal. It's funny how in the last five years, Las Vegas, when they didn't want no part of sporting events in Las Vegas because of the gambling element. Now it's the hub of all sporting events. That's the only place to go anywhere west of the Mississippi. You want to go to Las Vegas for your events. Absolutely. And that's part of a broader reality, Jason, in which media companies are doing now deals with sports betting outlets because they're they're hemorrhaging cash and they need revenue to keep their operations afloat. So it's the new normal in the sports industry, not just college football, college sports, but Sports journalism, everything. It's just it's where we are now. All right, we'll do one more off-field thing that we'll hit that we'll hit the hit, hit the grass. Talk to me about the NIL impact out in the Pac-12. Has there been any substantial name, image, and likeness deals? You know, obviously, probably a place like USC, the USC LA market's probably big. Probably the Seattle market, but in the small towns in the the in uh, Pullman, Washington, and you know Palo Alto, are any of these kind of places generating deals for some of these kids? Uh, you know, I've heard of a few uh, USC athletes getting deals. So, you know, like uh, Keaton Slovis, uh, you know, 
if you're a USC quarterback, like you're going to have yeah, that I mean. opportunity available to you whenever. Uh, haven't heard a lot of the small town deals, you know, like in a place such as Pullman, Washington State, Corvallis, Oregon State. Haven't heard a lot of that the past few weeks, but, you know, given everything else that's happened in college sports over the past few weeks since we last talked, yeah, that, that issue's kind of receded into the background. Not that it's ceased to be important, but just it's going gonna, it's gonna to be kind of a, a slow burn. Right. Like it's more about, at this point, it's more about just the gradual evolution of it. Like there's no, there's no like big event people are waiting for. Um, it's, it's more about, you know, just how is this thing going to evolve? Like that, that BYU deal right. uh, in terms of, you know, covering walk-ons. That's like a great that was a very interesting plot twist. So like, who, what's going to be the next creative thing there? But really the big stuff is this, this uh, Pac-12 alliance and what's the chessboard in terms of realignment, the playoff, like that's taken center stage in terms of off-field uh, intrigues in college sports, including in the, in the West. And I think you'll see, too, with these NIL deals, I think you, you'll see once we get three or four games into the season and stars emerge at these different schools where a guy like at Washington State, maybe the quarterbacks have an unbelievable three or four game stretch, then the marketing people will come out. The, the opportunities will present themselves in some of these markets when, the, when they really establish who's going who's gonna to be the star player that particular year. Completely agree. Yeah, I mean, like, the, and, you know, this is, this is going to be the first full-length college football season we've had in a pandemic. I mean, I know the, the SEC came pretty darn close to right. playing 12, but, like, this is the first, quote-unquote, normal yep. college football season played in a pandemic. So there's going to be a great appetite for college football, unlike last year when people were just, you know, derailed and ambushed by the pandemic. You know, sports TV ratings were down across all the sports, and it just felt really weird. Even, you know, like the, even the national title game, you know, played in front of just a few thousand fans in Miami. It didn't really land uh, the way it, uh, that national championship game normally would. Right, right. This is really, this in many ways is the true welcome back moment for college football. Popularity, you know, through the roof. People are really hungry for it. Uh, and so, yeah, several weeks into the season, the marketplace should definitely heat up. And it'll be very interesting to see. And uh, funny how Mr. Rolovich up at Washington State, his tune has changed a little bit now that they're mandating him to get vaccinated up at Washington State. It's funny how all of a sudden he'll get vaccinated now in order to keep his job. Yes, but with that said, it's not as though he's saying, oh, I believe in the vaccine. I, I believe in science. It's like he's still he's still saying, well, I'm just going to keep this to myself. And, you know, it's, it's definitely not a, what a leader would yeah. say. And you're continuing to see. I don't know if you're paying attention to Washington State blogs and Pac-12 blogs, the the, the calls for his uh, firing or, or resignation are as loud as they were a month ago. Okay, um, so it'll it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. And the, the 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 thing to emphasize with Washington State, since we're on the topic, if Washington State forfeits a game, he's gone. Oh, that's yeah. going to be the thing that gets him booted. So that's the ledge that Nick Rolovich is walking on. That's the thin sheet of ice he's walking on. If his team has to forfeit a game, boom, instant firing. That's <laughs> definitely going to happen. <laughs> All right. So one new coach to the league, Jed Fish, the new head coach, Arizona. Just any any thoughts about Jed? He's been all over the country at all, a bunch of different stops throughout the years. Is this a good hire for Arizona? Is this the kind of place he might stay for a few years if he has some moderate success? 
Or is he looking, is he a job jumping kind of guy looking to jump to the next job if he were to have a little bit of success? But yeah, this this is his first big uh, power five head coaching opportunity. So I think I think he's there for at least three years. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't think I don't think there will be like a quick exit a la Lane Kiffin, you know, spending one year at Tennessee before going to USC in right. 2010. He, he, he's, he wants to build the program. And I think for his resume, he needs to build the program. I mean, Jed Fish is a solid coach, I would say, but he hasn't had a superstar turn. Michigan, right. UCLA, his other various stops. He, ha- he hasn't built himself up uh, as a rock star. And, I, and you know, I, as, in terms of just grading the hire, I think there were more attractive options out there for Arizona. My first choice would have been Willie Fritz of Tulane, right. you know, a creative coach at a program which doesn't have a whole lot of resources. You know, let him give him the keys to a power five job. There were there were other choices like Marcus Freeman, the defensive coordinator, formerly at Cincinnati. Brian Kelly of Notre Dame snagged him. Uh, that was also a more attractive choice. So Fish, you know, solid. You know, I mean, he he didn't do a bad job for Jim Harbaugh, but but again, not great, not spectacular. Uh, does he deserve a chance to lead a Power Five program? I think Arizona's a good Smart. landing spot for him. You know, you wouldn't want to give a prominent power five job to him but a lower end one such as arizona yeah i think he deserves that let's see what he does and he certainly improved everyone's mood and it's not just the fact that he's not kevin Sumlin, you know whose team quit in a rivalry game you know losing 70 to 7 63 points to arizona state it's not just the fact that he's not kevin Sumlin. it's that he's opened up all his uh practices to the media yeah you know he's he's run a run a, a program with maximum transparency so the local writers local fans uh just people in and around the program wow they're all impressed and it and it and it's worth praising him for that like he's not one of these hyper paranoid coaches who thinks he always has something to hide he's he's an open book uh that's really great now let's see what he does on the field though that that's what really counts and with all the sean miller stuff that was brewing that's probably a safe it's a safe hire it's a low-key hire you're not bringing a guy who's had some other baggage other places he's going to stay out of trouble most likely so that's probably something they needed that's also precisely why his openness to the media is such a contrast and, right. and is so refreshing for the locals down in Tucson. That's also why, you know, there, that is a, uh, a, a fatigue, an emotionally fatigued program right. and community. They want some fresh air. They want someone who's wholesome and is, who's going to, you know, at least go about things the right way. They obviously want the wins, but right now, just for this honeymoon period, it's like, Oh, you know, someone who's just open and accountable, definitely the opposite of Sean Miller. So yeah, that's, that's, that's part of the mix. Good insight. Let's go to, let's go to Arizona state. I know you and I talked earlier in the summer about this recruiting investigation down there. I know they got rid of a coach, I believe in the last couple of weeks, a couple of guys give us an update on the Herm Edwards situation, Arizona state. Yeah. So three position coaches were either suspended or, removed so that that there the the uh the lower reaches of that coaching staff have been thinned out so that means more work for the coordinators and this and the senior position coaches so that you know that already places a strain on this coaching staff but it does seem pretty clear at this point that the ncaa is not going to make a verdict before or during the season it'll be after the season 
Uh, so, you know, we'll, we'll see what the NCA does, but assuming that, uh, uh, you know, nothing, ha- nothing does happen before or during the season. Well, here's here, her, here is Herm Edwards, big chance. You know, the, he ha- he has by all accounts, a good team, a veteran defense, a lot of starters back. He has a seasoned quarterback yes. who, uh, ha- is in a prove it year, you know, Jaden Daniels and, and lots of other quarterbacks in the Pac-12 last year because of their shortened season really didn't get to prove themselves right you know got just four to six games of of playing time so this is it for for Jaden Daniels as well you know will if he puts together a huge year he could probably rise to uh late first round early second round and not not top 15 but but I think he might be able to get the back end of the first round if he puts together a great year uh, but yet, you know, the, the thing with Herm Edwards is that his Arizona State teams are kind of like the Virginia basketball or the you know, Bo Ryan Wisconsin teams is that they play a conservative style. They emphasize defense so that they're never out of a game, but they're not going to blow you out. And so Arizona State, you know, needs to find a way to either excel so much within Herm Edwards system that it's winning every close game or it needs to find a level to uh, a level of transcendence. A way to with find the offense, with the potency offense. on offense. Yes, potency on offense to kind of go beyond Herm Edwards' preferred grinded out style. That's what I'm particularly skeptical of because um, Arizona State's defense is going to be fine, but you know the offense. That's that's really the big question. Solid offensive line, quality running backs. It's the receivers. They do not have proven receivers. And you've seen Nikhil Harry and Frank Darby and Brandon Ayuk. Uh, uh, yeah, go through yeah, the program yeah. in, in very recent years. So they don't have that big time speed burner on the edges. And so, you know, a Herm Edwards team is a grinded out team, doesn't have a lot of imagination on offense. So, uh, you know, Arizona State, can it tr- get out of that mud? Can it get out of that seven and five, eight and four range? Find a way to get to 10 and two. I think yeah. that's really the goal that Sun Devil fans have. For the program can we be a 10 win program i mean nine would be pretty good herm hasn't won nine yet uh this is his fourth season uh so it like nine is the floor in terms of arizona state fans expectations here in phoenix but i think 10 is really the goal and, and hopefully they'll hope that 10 comes with a win over usc if they go 10 and 2 with a win over usc probably means they're the pac-12 south champions for the first time since 2013, they get yep. they finally get back to the Pac-12 championship game. They get a chance to play their way into the Rose Bowl. That's what ASU fans are expecting from this season. Where's that? Where's that game at you with USC? Is it in in, in Tempe? It's in Tempe. It's on okay. Double Stadium. Yep. All right. Let's get to the players on the field. Let's go. Probably the best offensive player is probably Keaton Slovis, as he's probably preseason player of the year on offense. Or t- tell me if I'm wrong. In the Pac-12, uh, that, that's uh, that's a great choice. The, the the mystery with Keaton Slovis is that last year he had shoulder problems. He was v- kind of mum about it, but he admitted in the offseason that, yeah, his body wasn't entirely right. I mean, he didn't go into details, and I guess that's fine. It's kind of much the way hockey teams say that a player had an upper body injury. You know, they're not very specific about it, but, but Slovis did – albeit indirectly and well after the season, he said, yeah, I wasn't fully physically right. So if he's physically right, you know, he could have a huge year. And that is really the best case scenario uh, for USC, that Keaton Slovis is 100% fit. Right. He, cu- he plays a lot more like 
the 2019 version of himself, which was pretty dynamic, but now he has two more years of experience within coordinator Graham Harrell's air raid yep. system. Yep. So if he puts the, all the pieces together, yeah. Now, in terms of my particular choice for Pac-12 Offensive Player of the Year, I would say it's Slovis's teammate, Drake London, the wide receiver. Uh, he he is, is a freak. Uh, he, he makes all sorts of catches. He's going to be a beast in terms of winning 50-50 balls in the air, but he has speed as well. He can make plays all over the field, various kinds of routes. I mean, that that's the one USC offensive player I'm 100% convinced will have a huge year. Like, like Slovis could struggle, but and he might, you know, throw some questionable passes. Well, Drake London's going to make him look good right. uh, on, on those plays. So that would actually be okay. uh, my choice. You know, in Oregon and Washington, I, I see a lot of weaknesses on both offenses. Uh, both quarterbacks, I'm not sold. Like Oregon's quarterback position has become surprisingly muddled. Right. Uh, it was it was widely expected that Anthony Brown, you know, transfer from Boston College, who played with the program in Eugene last year, there was every expectation that he was going to firmly take hold of the job, but he hasn't been able to secure it. And Ty Thompson is nipping on his heels. So that that concerns me if I'm an Oregon fan, especially with Ohio State there in week two, you know, that you do, you haven't settled on a quarterback. Like this isn't a case of the quarterbacks are dueling each other and it's just an amazing fight. It's more of the incumbent failing to secure the job. Right. right. You know, it's a, it's a negative spin on that. Uh, so Oregon has to be worried. And, and with Washington, Dylan Morris, he's actually looked very good in camp, but we need to see it on the field in live games. And, and the thing with Washington, John Donovan, offensive coordinator, very meager credentials and compared to Oregon's offensive coordinator, Joe Moorhead, you know, who got the most out of, out of Saquon Barkley yeah, Penn and State. Trace McSorley at Penn yeah. State, you know, he's proven that he can max out as a play caller and a schemer. Uh, John Donovan has none of those chops. So for different, but, 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 but uh, you know, considerably powerful reasons, there's reason to be skeptical about the offenses at both Oregon and Washington. So uh, I'm very comfortable saying that Drake London uh, is the best uh, offensive player in the Pac-12 before heading into the season. Yeah, and defensively, I think everybody's eye is going to go to Oregon. Kayvon Thibodeau, the, the defensive yes. end. The, yes. you know, he'll, he's a true junior. He'll be a – he's most likely coming out after this year unless something happens. Um, he'll be probably a top-10 pick at worst. So, I think yep. he's, he's going to get all the defensive attention. Absolutely. In that Absolutely. Yep. It's a lot clearer on the defensive side. And what one thing which helps uh, Thibodeau uh, become the obvious front runner for defensive player of the year is that the best defensive player on Washington, Zion Tupuolo Fatui, uh, their pass, their star pass rusher. Oh, can you spell that? Can you spell that? <laughs> Tupuola, T U P U O L A. Fetui, F-E-T-U-I. Look at I you. do my homework. That a boy. That a boy. Okay. But anyway, so Tupola Fatui, he's going to be out at least eight games, okay. possibly nine or ten. And uh, that 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 reality means that when Washington does play Oregon, Tupola Fatui will be out. So the Huskies are going to have to find a way past the Ducks without him. Uh, but here's the thing. If, if Washington can somehow upset Oregon and it's in Seattle, so it's not like, uh, you know, they're, they're headed for a drubbing in Eugene, like right. it, playing at home in front of fans, they might be able to keep that game close. If Washington can steal that game, I think Oregon's the favorite going in, 
But if Washington can steal that game and get out of the first eight, nine games of the season with just one loss, then you have Tupu Ola Fetui returning in late November. What is expected to be a very good defense could become a great defense. That would be the dream scenario for the Washington Huskies. So we'll see if they can get by the Michigan game in week two in Ann Arbor, if they can somehow survive the Oregon game. And then then if they get their best defensive player back late in the season, wow, that could, that could be very interesting. Now I don't think that'll happen, Hmm. but that is the scenario, which is out there for Washington to have a max out season. Absolutely. All right. Let's head, let's head to LA. The clay, the, the annual Clay Helton watch is underway. <laughs> what, what's the, what's the date of the last game? Like late November, 1st of December. That's the, yeah. that's the, that's the uh, guillotine, the day of guillotine execution day. What's the, what's the word out of LA Clay Helton? Does he have to, does he have to win the South division? Does he have to get to the title game to keep his job? Yeah. So there was considerable news this past week in Los Angeles on that front, Jason, uh, Mike Bone, the USC athletic director, said 2021 was not make or break for Clay okay. Helton. But but the here's the key. It's not as though he made a prepared statement saying that. He was asked about it by a reporter. Right. So you know, the reporter got to frame the question. You know, the reporter asked, is 21 2021 make or break bone said no and so of course an athletic director is not just going to come out and say right. well this is the make or break season you, know, you play politics you you show support in public sure. for your head coach so to that extent you know that it doesn't mean a whole lot but there were other remarks bone made which have usc fans concerned he, you know, he said usc was terrible in 2019 which coincidentally is when bone took over from Lynn Swan uh, in the AD chair. So he's kind of tooting his own horn. Now look look how much I have improved the program. But nevertheless, Bone talked about improvements USC has made under Clay Helton in the last two years. And yes, the, the recruiting has been better the past two years, but who had USC in a bad place at the end of 2018 and the start of 2019, Clay Helton. It's the same guy. So that has USC fans concerned that Bone thinks that Helton is, you know, on the right track. You know, that's not what what USC fans want to hear. And so here's here's the deal. I think that Bone's remarks – they don't mean that, you know, he's going to stand by Clay Helton no matter what. You know, he that there, there was a political dimension to a good portion of what he said. But Bone did seem to give a little bit more credit to Helton than he deserved. And, and so if we're if we're trying to judge, you know, is the AD trying to think about saving the coach or appeasing the fan base? You know, if you're kind of doing like a, a needle here, the needle is slightly tipped toward he's trying to save the head coach. Like he seems to be on good terms with the head coach and he might give him the benefit of the doubt. So I think if USC goes 10 and two, yeah, Helton is safe. Yeah. I think that, I think that we're, we're there right now. The real mystery is nine eight and, and four, three, eight and four, nine and well, I think if he goes eight and four, you know, it, all right. If he How goes he eight loses, and four and who he loses he, to, yeah, well, and if he goes eight and four, you know, like one of those losses is going to be a non-conference loss to Notre Dame. So eight and four could mean you go six and three in the Pac-12 South. And historically, you know, you probably need to go seven and two yeah. in the Pac-12 to win the South. But there have been occasions when six and three 
has been good enough, you know, in a tiebreaker. He better not. So, he won't so make it, it at eight and four. He won't make it eight, at eight and four. Well, if it, at eight and four, if, if, he, if he's pr- it probably means USC is going to lose tiebreakers. It probably yes. does. And now on the off chance that, you know, Utah and Arizona State are both finished seven and five, though, you know, which, which, you know, would not be unheard of. Right. Uh, you know, maybe USC slips in the back door and the Pac-12 South is awful. I mean, right. who knows? You know, right. like the, the, the pandemic season has given us so little basis for predicting what's what's actually going to happen because that's really just kind of a throwaway season. Yep. Oregon won the Pac-12 and really played poorly most of the year. And you know, remember we, we had that bizarro Pac-12 titled game with with Oregon getting into the game because Washington had a COVID issue. Right. So it's really very scrambled. So, but anyway. If uh, if he goes eight and four, I think he's done. It's really nine and three. That's really kind of the Mendoza right. line. That's really the 50-50 scenario. Um, and, and so it's probably going to depend on whether he gets into the Pac-12 championship game and then beats Oregon or beat, you know w- just wins that game, whoever the opponent is. Uh, that that's really uh, you know that that is a 50-50 you know jump ball to me. So I think if you're a USC fan, you want Clay Helton gone. You're rooting for four losses. If you get four losses, he'll be out the door. But nine and three and bone retaining Helton would be the disaster scenario because you don't even get the 10 and two. You know, you don't get, you know, the really strong Pac-12 results. Uh, nine and three, that's, you know, the right on the fence, just enough to keep him around. Right. That would be the absolute nightmare for USC fans. Let's let's go to the other side of LA. To me, I just I just keep waiting for for Chip Kelly to put it together again. Back to the glory days of his Oregon days. You know, what is his fourth year at UCLA now? Coming up on year four, he's got a quarterback that's been there, played for a long time under his system. Has he recruited well enough for, for UCLA to back to be back being a factor again, or is it just kind of another seven and six? I mean, seven and five, eight and four kind of year for UCLA. Yeah, so, you know, this is where the Pac-12's 2020 season and all of its weirdness comes back into play because UCLA looked great against a Cal team, which was highly touted last year, but had COVID problems, was really disorganized. You know, Cal last year had Bill Musgrave coming in as the new offensive coordinator. So there was a change at a very important spot, and Cal looked very disorganized. And you might remember Cal played UCLA – uh, on Sunday morning, right? Uh, yeah, the rare yep. Sunday morning game, yep. and so Cal looked like a team that you know had not woken up, uh, didn't you know, didn't get the alarm clock early enough. So, but do do does UCLA's great performance in that game mean that the Bruins are you know headed in the right direction? It's hard to say. And then UCLA's other really good performance last year was against Arizona State. USC UCLA physically dominated Arizona State in Tempe. But Arizona State had its COVID problems. Arizona State did not play for three weeks. And so the Sun Devils were rusty. They were out of rhythm. They hadn't practiced. And they probably committed pandemic recruiting violations <laughs> in, the, in the days leading up to that game. But anyway, the point is Arizona State was not in any kind of rhythm. UCLA definitely caught Arizona State at the right time. So, again, you ask, is that a reflection on UCLA and, and the Bruins being headed in the right direction or was that a more of a reflection of Arizona state being a total mess during the pandemic? So that, so it's really hard to figure 
which way it's going to go for UCLA this year. But, you know, we, we look at Dorian Thompson Robinson, the quarterback right. that you mentioned, you know, he has plenty of experience, definitely a dynamic dual threat playmaker can make plays with his legs, but really what's going to tell the tale for UCLA, the defense and UCLA got a big lead against USC uh, in late last season and blew it in the second right. half, right. Uh, just a, a collapse in the fourth quarter. So it's really going to be the defense. We look at the offense. We look at Chip Kelly. We remember what he did at Oregon, but it's the defense that's going to determine uh, what UCLA has. And, you know, I don't have a strong opinion, but I, I would say that, you know, the burden of proof is on UCLA to, to, to show it can play elite defense over the course of 12 games. And we'll see what it does against LSU in week two in well yeah. week one ucla is one of the few teams that plays in week zero against hawaii gotcha. so it gets a game it gets a game under its belt and then it goes to then it hosts lsu on labor day weekend in week one and uh, if it can pull the upset there well that's the springboard for the bruins if, if they can cross that hurdle they can dare to dream bigger but if lsu comes in and mows them down and that's going to be same old, same old, and Chip's going to be on the hot seat. Is he is he recruiting well out there? Is he is he pretty fairly competitive with the USC's and the Oregon's on the recruiting not, trail? Not really. I mean, Oregon and USC are the only two Pac-12 programs that are in the national yep. top 25 in recruiting. So right. Chip Kelly is not making what I would view as a splash. Now, I mean, Washington is really taking it on the chin in recruiting, and 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 Husky fans in Seattle. They're really worried that everything's cratering under Jimmy Lake, but Chip Kelly is not really moving the needle the way UCLA fans hoped he would on the recruiting trail. I got you. What's the deal with David Shaw at Stanford? Is he getting stale at Stanford? I mean, he's been there a long time. He's, he's resisted opportunities to go elsewhere. Is that something where he just does, you know, to me, it just feels like he might, he might be in line just to make a move, just to be in a different environment. I know they're doing okay at Stanford, but, you know, it seems like he's wasting the prime of his coaching career where he could be at a big job, either an SEC type job or maybe even potentially an NFL job. What, do you, what is your thoughts on Shaw at Stanford? Well, one of the interesting things about this past summer in the Pac-12 is that when the uh, reports of alleged recruiting violations emerged at Arizona State, who was the one Pac-12 coach who really came out with a fierce, forceful statement condemning the Sun Devils and Herm Edwards? It was David Shaw. So, you know, there, there is definitely a sense of pride David Shaw has in being at Stanford, this citadel of academic excellence, like being able to win while having these high academic standards, you know, that, that's something that really matters to David Shaw. So right now, it seems as though he likes being there. That's where he wants to be. He wants to revive the program after, you know, the post-Christian McCaffrey lull right. the past several years. You know, it isn't what it once was. I think Shaw, at least right now, okay. seems pretty invested in that. Now, <laughs> if he if he has a terrible 2021, that might change his mind. But I, I would say he's definitely going to coach Stanford in 2022. And that might be when he, he considers a, a look at a, a, a different job. So, uh, and Stanford's a real, a real mystery. And it's it's been interesting to notice that uh, in terms of uh, the over/under win totals, Stanford's over/under win total at a lot of sports books is four. Wow! And that that means Stanford's going to lose to Oregon State. That means Stanford's going to lose to Washington State. That's not happening. I didn't think at least so. 
It usually doesn't. I mean, Washington State's in a really bad spot. Washington State's hemorrhaged depth uh, under Nick Rolovich. Uh, and, and Oregon State, you know, people people are noticed that Oregon State beat Oregon last year. That was a lot more about where Oregon was than where Oregon State was. Um, and, and so Oregon State, you know, Jonathan Smith shows signs of being a good coach. But, you know, he, we need to see like a seven and five season from Oregon State to give the Beavers that level of respect. So the idea that Stanford's going to be four and eight, I'm not seeing. I'm, I'm thinking six and six, maybe seven and five, which is definitely not where the program uh, expects to be. It's not where David Shaw expects to be, but they'll get to a bowl game. Right. Um, and so, you know, w- with David Shaw, what, what really made the difference for him, uh, you know, when he took over from Jim Harbaugh, uh, well, partly it was having Andrew Luck at the right. very beginning that obviously helped. But then when when Luck left 2012, 13, 14, 15, uh, you know, Stanford's regularly had great running backs, you know, not right. just Christian McCaffrey, but then Bryce Love in 2017. That's been a constant. But the defense had monsters in 2012, 2013 that that period when Stanford was regularly making the Rose Bowl, yes. I mean, they, they were able to shut down Chip Kelly's Oregon offenses. Right. That's what's not there at Stanford anymore. That bone crushing, you know, just shut you down defense. defense that's where defense Stanford. Yep. Yeah, that's where Stanford is, is, is lacking. So that so Shaw has to find a way to build that back. Now, if he can, I mean, look, he's shown that he can win in modern times with a man ball philosophy, but until he gets some real freaks on defense to supplement the running backs that he's always able to develop at Stanford. Tight ends are always good at missing piece there. Yeah. Always good at tight end, always pretty good on the offensive line. It's he likes to play that power eye formation football more than the spread old school. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, so he just need he needs a nasty defense. I mean, you think about um, Oklahoma, you know, Oklahoma, went through a lull precisely because it lost that edge with pass rushing. I mean, you think about the great Oklahoma teams from various eras, not just the Tony Casillas teams sure. of the mid 1980s, but the, the, the teams uh, around, uh, you know, the early two thousands, they had a nasty defense. Like they mm-hmm. won some slug fests against Texas, not the four the 50 to 45 games we've seen in recent years, but like with the Roy Williams, Teddy yes. Lehman, they would beat Texas 12, nothing. They beat Texas 14 to three. And, you know, so Oklahoma lost, uh, lost its way for several years late in the Bob Stoops era. You know, when that defense uh, and the pass rush, yep. you know, ceased to be authoritative. So that's what Alex Grinch has been able to develop back at Oklahoma. That's why you're seeing Oklahoma ranked in the top two and being thought of as a team that's going to finally clear that playoff semifinal hurdle and get to the national title game. So that's a, I'm just make I illustrate that example just to tie back to Stanford. Stanford lost that kind of bite on defense, much as Oklahoma did. If the revival is going to happen at Stanford, that's where it's going to come from. And they're going to win a lot of, they're going to be in a lot of close games. They're not going to get blown out a lot. They're going to be in a lot of, you know, defensive. A lot like Arizona state. Right. Exactly. Exactly. That's just the, like the style he likes to play and tries to win it, win the game in the fourth quarter kind of, kind of strategy. All right. hundred percent. Yeah. So you're listening to the powers on sports podcast. We're we're, we're chatting with Matt Zimmick, 
about all things Pac-12. Matt's the editor for Trojan Wire, part of the USA Today network of uh, online platforms. Couple sleeper teams. To me, one of the best coaches in the country that gets undervalued every year and gets the most out of his kids is Winningham at Utah. What a job he does developing kids at Utah, you know, year after year, and they're always competitive. Your thoughts on Utah, and give me a sleeper team in the conference that may we're not that may not win the conference, but that's going to be a pain in the neck to everybody. So, uh, well, let me start with that sleeper team first. I think it's Cal, and, I, and I, that doesn't mean I'm sold on Cal. I'm not, but I just I just see the door being open in the Pac-12 North in terms of. I can see Oregon's quarterback situation imploding, in which case the Ducks could be a, an eight and four team. And I can see Washington's offense imploding. I mean, Washington has not recruited well, especially not at wide receiver. Uh, you know, Dylan Morris, we need to see him pl play well. And if Washington gets kicked around by Michigan early in this early in the season in, in week two, we can see the Huskies stumble through their season and again missing. Tupola Fatui, you know, that's probably going to cost him at least a game or two at some point. So let's say Oregon and Washington. I mean, I, I wouldn't expect it, but it's well within the realm of possibility that Oregon and Washington both finish eight and four. And if that happens, who's to say Cal can't be eight and four? So it's not a matter of Cal being so good that it's going to rise up the charts. It's more going to be about Oregon and Washington falling to the right. level where Cal might be able to steal a weak Pac-12 North. Now, the Pac-12 North has won nine of the 10 Pac-12 championship games. It has been the better division in the Pac-12 over the past decade. But maybe this is the year in which the Pac-12 North is terrible. So Cal is a sleeper team in that sense. Veteran quarterback Chase Garbers. Wilcox, you know, is, is an extremely good defensive coach. He's, he's frustrated Oregon's offense each of the last two seasons. And he's won two straight against Washington. So Cal winning the North, not likely at all. No, no one's saying that. Possible? Pain in Absolutely. the neck. And pain Absolutely. In the and so let's now go to Utah. So Kyle Whittingham. Now, I'm of the opinion that, you know, he's, uh, he's a very good coach. No one disputes that. But he hasn't won a Pac-12 title yet. And he's been there a long time. And he's had some really good defenses. He had some, he's had some great opportunities to win the conference. You know, this year, the big drama for Utah is Utah has never won in the Los Angeles Coliseum. Not once. And USC's been, you know, not that great over the past decade, you know, since Pete Carroll left. So Utah and Whittingham, they need to go into the LA Coliseum and win. If, you know, if, if, if now, first of all, if Utah wins at USC, it's probably winning the Pac 12 South and making the Pac-12 championship game. But it's more than that. It's about, you know, if you really view yourself as an elite program, you're going to knock this door down. You're going to get past this obstacle, you know, like, uh, you know, trying trying to beat Alabama in the SEC West or Florida trying to beat Georgia. Florida knocked that door down last year right. after Dan Mullen whiffed several times. So Utah and Whittingham, uh, need to knock that door down in Los Angeles against the Trojans. That would change perceptions for me and other people who've, who've seen Utah get really close, but then it's usually the quarterback position. It's usually the offense that stumbles. Like in the 2018 right. right. Pac-12 championship game scored just three points against Washington and Washington's only touchdown was a pick six. Right. So you know, it was essentially a 3-3 game. I mean, that's that's the history of Utah the past decade under Whittingham. 
great defense, but the offense just can't get over the hump in really meaningful moments. So I think we, we, you know, Whittingham, I respect him. And, and yeah, you know, like he's done this in Salt Lake City. He hasn't he, done this in a big media he, market. I think so what I he does. That, but he really has to get past some of these hurdles that he just hasn't been able to clear since that 2008 team with Brian Johnson, the one that uh, crushed Alabama right. in the Sugar Bowl. Remember, the, and my, my point on Whittingham is, this guy's not getting four and five star recruits. He is developing two yes. and three star guys, yes. and he's and he's getting the most out of these kids. And for them to be pushing USC, Oregon every year and being super competitive in Salt Lake City, Utah, that's a hell of a feat. It sure is. And the fact, and I will say in in his defense and on his behalf that you know, hey, he's won two of the last three. Pac-12 Souths. You know, last year was yeah. kind of a throwaway season. Yeah. So I'm like, he won the division back to back. Uh, so he's, so he's definitely, he has shown signs of growth and improvement over the past few years. And I would also say about this year's team, Charlie Brewer, you know, he led, he almost led Baylor, Baylor. to the college right. football playoff right. in 2019. So I think that's a great transfer addition. He's a tough quarterback. So like, he's the kind of guy who, if, if Utah can get to the Pac-12 title game, I don't expect Charlie Brewer to fold under right. pressure right. the way Utah's other quarterbacks have done. So I'm optimistic on the Utes this year, but I'm but I'm but my optimism is really more because uh, Clay Helton and Herm Edwards are the coaches that Whittingham is going against. So like it's this three three coaches that I'm skeptical of to varying degrees, but obviously I'm a lot more skeptical of Helton and Edwards than I am of uh, Whittingham. But I do think that Charlie Brewer is going to be a difference maker for Utah this season. All right, I got two more to get you out of here. Give me, give me a couple of venues that are pretty cool venues to watch a game at that maybe people around the country wouldn't see. Obviously, we know about Oregon and Autzen. You know, give me a venue or two that are kind of under the radar that are pretty cool places to watch a good game. Okay, well, you know, I mean, Husky Stadium's not under the radar, but I mean, like the 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 the, the uh, lake lakeside yep. tailgating, the, yep. the majestic view, got to just got to mention that. But the thing about the Pac-12, the stadiums generally are intimate. Like none none of the stadiums other than the LA Coliseum are these eighty or ninety thousand seat stadiums, which you know, which are commonplace in the SEC and Big Ten, most of them are relatively intimate. You think about it, like Berkeley, Strawberry Canyon, you know, the, that the Memorial Stadium nestled into uh, those cliffs there. And you have, you know, the Rose Bowl, of course, in the shadows of the San Gabriel Mountains. I, rem uh, I remember back in the day when Colorado was good, Folsom Field was a pretty cool environment yes. when they were really good. Well, but it's also an intimate stadium. I don't, I don't think that's much more than 50, 55,000 yeah. uh, capacity so Research Stadium, you know, in, in Corvallis, just in those open fields of Oregon. I've driven up uh, a snowy night in Pullman. Times. A snowy night in Pullman is always a pretty cool watch on TV, at least, on, yeah. you know, when you see it on TV. Yeah, so Martin Stadium up in Pullman is 35,000. So that, wow. there's, there's a common thread among many Pac-12 stadiums that they're not huge behemoths. They're nestled into these cozy enclaves. Uh, so like the, 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 the conference has a lot of charm that way. And that, that actually most of the stadiums are not huge. They, they go for intimacy. So you're close to the field. You're in a localized environment. You know, it's not kind of swallowed up in a big urban sprawl. I mean, so there's, there's lots of local color and charm uh, when you go to the stadiums. Now you don't have the electricity 
of the SEC, but you definitely get an intimate game day experience uh, whenever you go to a Pac-12 stadium. You got it. You got it. All right, it's prediction time. Who do you like coming out of the, the North and the South? And who do you think is going to be the conference champion? And do you yeah, think they're, they're going to make the playoff? Yeah. So, uh, you know, Washington's offensive system, I think, is just going to be such a drag on the Huskies <laughs> that Oregon will Oregon will go up to Seattle and beat the Huskies. Oregon should, be, should beat the Huskies based on uh, the full resources of each program. I don't think Dylan Morris is good enough at quarterback to offset – uh, you know, Oregon's quarterback woes. I don't think he's going to be able to transcend that. And so it's going to be an ugly defensive game. And I think Oregon has the better defense because, uh, you know, because of Thibodeau being on the field and Tupa Olafatui not being on the field. So Oregon in the North. And then I think Utah in the South. And I think Utah will, in fact, knock that door down against USC. You know, I just it's just impossible to trust Clay Helton. Now, that, that having been said, there is a possibility that, you know, Keaton Slovis is just, you know, the bionic man this year. You know, he does whatever he wants. He just, he slings it around the yard so well that it doesn't, that Clay Helton's presence doesn't matter. And it also has to be said that USC does look better on defense under coordinator Todd Orlando. He replaced a bad defensive coordinator named Clancy Pendergast a right. couple years ago. Right. Now, you know, now the, obviously a big question mark is, you know, did the pandemic mean USC's defense played well last year, but it was a pandemic season. So was that a product of Pac-12 offenses being disorganized because they didn't have an off season in which to gain continuity and rhythm? But it, it really does seem that Todd Orlando at USC has made the Trojans defense legitimately stronger, tougher, given them better stamina. Uh, just he's sharpened their instincts. So that could be a reason to pick USC not only to win the South, but to win the whole Pac-12. But my Clay Helton skepticism is just too deeply entrenched for that. So I do like Utah to win in Los Angeles and win the South. And then in the Pac-12 title game, you know, it's just you you have hit 10 years of history to look at, Jason, and you also have that 2019 Utah-Oregon Pac-12 title game to look at. Until Utah gets across the threshold, you got to pick the Pac-12 North and you got to pick against Utah in a Pac-12 championship game. Now, hopefully, it won't be the ten to three game against Washington in 2018. But nevertheless, you know, it, Utah has the burden of proof. Utah has to show that it can beat the Pac-12 North champion in the conference title game. And then, no, I don't think Oregon is going to make the college football playoff. I think the Pac-12 will be locked out. I think the Pac-12 champion will have at least two losses. And we say it out here in the West every year, the Pac-12 champion, in order to be in the mix for the playoff, has to go 12-1. and one. And you can't, you can't lose that second game. And I don't see any team being, you know, that truly elite standout team right. to get to 12-1. and one. The fact that Oregon is very likely to lose at Ohio State in week two on September 11, you know, that Oregon probably needs that game to get to the playoff. Yes. As Pac-12 champion, not very likely. Washington similarly has to win that game at Michigan right. in week two to get to the playoff. And that, that that's a 50-50 game for me. Uh, but I don't think the Huskies offense is consistent enough. And, and Utah, you know, might win uh, – in LA against USC, but then might lose to Arizona State. Right. We'll have other tough games on its schedule. Uh, Utah and Oregon play each other. So one of those two teams is going to lose there. Mm -hmm. So it just doesn't look like 
uh, the Pac-12 is going to get a playoff team, which kind of brings us back full circle, Jason, to the beginning of the conversation. They need that 12-team playoff. Yeah, exactly. I I mean, absolutely. No, there's no doubt about it. Well, Matt, great, great job. Continued success with USC, uh, the Trojan Wire. Tell everybody where they can find you on on social media and and where they can find your uh, coverage of USC football. Yeah, so on trojanswire.usatoday.com, you can find me on Twitter at Matt Zemek, C-E-M-E-K. I do have a Patreon site. I recently did a a Cal Golden Bears podcast at my Patreon site, uh, and I don't paywall my Patreon content. So if you just, you know, that it's, I want everybody to enjoy it and partake of it. And if you like my work, Hey, throw a few bucks in the tip jar. I don't, I'm not expecting, you know, large donations, but you know, if you throw in five bucks, that would really help. I just like, you know, the work to be appreciated. Uh, Before we close this broadcast, Jason, I just want to say on the air, really enjoyed your Bobby Bowden retrospective. Appreciate that. Great way to honor the coach, uh, the passion, the love, and the way, the, the extent to which Bobby Bowden touched your life and the lives of the people you had on the show really enjoyed it. Really appreciate it. God bless you. I appreciate it. I was going to mention one more thing. I know Terry Donahue, the UCLA coach just passed away recently. Did you have any experiences with him or over the years at all? I I know he was a big time coach out in UCLA in the PAC 10 for many, many years. Well, you know, uh, as a, as a young boy, uh, the first Rose bowl I ever watched as a six-year-old was 1982. The second one was 1983. And that was when Terry Donahue began that run of three Rose Bowl championship right. in four years at UCLA. And you stop and think, UCLA hasn't won the Pac-10, now the Pac-12, since 1998. The Bob Toledo, Cade McNown team, right. which came within an eyelash of playing in the first BCS championship game against Tennessee, lost that heartbreaker to Miami. So UCLA hasn't done jack squat in 23 years Terry Donahue had UCLA regularly in the top 10, regularly playing New Year's Day bowl games. He, he was a badass. Yeah, he, yeah, he was. He brought Troy Aikman to, to UCLA from Oklahoma. He was an unbelievable West Coast. I mean, you know, Pac, Pac-10 coach, man. He was, he was the, the, the dean of the Pac-10 for many, many years in the 80s and early 90s. It's it's kind of remarkable to know that he is the winningest Pac-12 coach ever by, Still. I believe, I believe by one game over Don James, ah. uh, you know, but, but it, 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 what that shows is that, you know, longevity is, has been hard to come by. And you think about it like John McKay, I think in many ways to me is like the greatest PAC 10 coach ever. I mean, now technically he never coached in the PAC 10 because the PAC 10 didn't eight. come into existence until 1978 when Arizona and Arizona State joined. But, like, you know, of the schools that have yes. current Pac-12 membership, I would say John McKay is the best ever, but he just lasted 16 years. You know, there's no Pac-10, uh, 12, or formerly, back in the 70s, Pac-8 right. coach who became, like, the Joe Paterno of the West right. who stayed, like, 25, 30 years, like Bobby Bowden did at Florida State. There's no Pac-10, Pac-12 coach who did that. You know, Donahue, when he retired, he retired, I believe, at age 51. He got out of the profession very early. And like Dean Smith at North Carolina, he said years later he regretted 
that he retired that early. But uh, but so so it's remarkable that Donahue accomplished all he did in a relatively shorter period of time, retiring at 51, you know, before going to the CBS broadcast booth and then to the, the 49ers front office and those other pursuits. So it's just as striking that there's been no Bobby Bowden of the West, right. at least in recent memory, at least in the past 60, 50, 60 years or so. So that's part, that's a striking part of, you know, reflecting on Terry Donahue's career and legacy at UCLA. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. He was, he had a, he, he was a great coach out there and, really put West Coast football on the map, you know, outside, obviously USC, but he made LA a hotbed for football with USC well, and UCLA. He, yeah, well, what he did was, you know, USC had just come off the John Robinson years where, you know, won the national title in 78, was number two in 79. Right. Marcus Allen won the 81 Heisman Trophy. I mean, USC was still USC at the height of its powers. And Donovan Donahue was able to muscle in there and make LA a two-city uh, football town and really with UCLA under Donahue and USC and then Don James at Washington right had three really formidable Pac-10 programs in, in in the 1980s and that gave the league depth and it also boosted the conference's reputation uh, going forward heading into the 1990s absolutely absolutely well, great work Matt keep it up and we will definitely check in at some point here early in the, in the college football season to get some thoughts, man. So have a great week and appreciate the insight. Jason, we have week zero coming up. I know that some people might not think of Nebraska versus Illinois as real yeah. college football, but it's a Big Ten game that counts. So the season is upon us. I hope you have a really fun season on your show. Awesome, man. Thanks, man. Have a great week, man. You too. Thank you. Thanks for tuning into the Powers on Sports podcast. We really appreciate it. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review. Before we get back to the episode, want to mention Titan Home Lending. If you have any home financing needs in the state of Florida, reach out to me, Jason Powers, Titan Home Lending, 205-790-1404. I can help you with a home purchase, with a refinance, with a cash-out refinance, with a renovation loan, a VA loan, FHA loan, conventional loan, and virtually anything in between relative to home financing. So reach out to me at Titan Home Lending, 205-790-1404. You can reach me on email at jpowers at titanhl.com. Enjoy the rest of the podcast. All right, welcome back to the Powers on Sports podcast. Appreciate you finding us. We are continuing our college football Power 5 conference previews. And now we are off to the ACC, the Atlantic Coast Conference. And I'm very uh, welcome to bring in Chris Bond. Chris is the, one of the founders of ACC Nation, which is a, a website that covers all things ACC. It's accnation.net is the uh, web website link. Um, and uh, have, have a personal connection with Chris. Chris and I have grew up together in the Tampa Bay area and we actually went to the same high school at the same time together. So haven't, haven't hooked up with Chris in a long time. So it's glad to be glad I found Chris and saw that he was involved in uh, the ACC conference. So welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thank you, Jason. It's an honor. And uh, it's most certainly an honor to cross paths with you again, a sophisticated gentleman like yourself and uh, ready to talk some ACC football this coming year. Yeah, we got lots to talk about. First of all, let's give it, we'll give the audience a quick little recap of last year. If you remember, it was Clemson and Notre Dame that was in the ACC title game. 
and you're wondering why Notre Dame? Well, last year with the pandemic, Notre Dame was allowed to join the ACC for the football season last year. So they, they ended up uh, playing basically a full ACC schedule uh, and they were in the championship game. Clemson, they'd beaten Clemson earlier in the year up in South Bend. And then Clemson exacted some massive revenge in the title game with a beatdown of uh, Notre Dame in the title game. And then Clemson went on to the uh, playoffs. So uh, that's kind of where we ended up the 2020 season. So we're up at the 2021. You know, I'll hold off on Clemson, Chris, first, because we all think we know what, what Clemson's about. I want to talk about a couple of other teams as we go on. A lot of hype going into this uh, 2021 season about North Carolina. Mac Brown, year three. You got Sam Howell, at quarterback, the Florida kid, is a quarterback. A lot of people think he's going to, he's kind of the Heisman Trophy favorite heading into the season. Just your thoughts about Mac Brown's kind of resurgence at North Carolina in, in that program. Well, rarely does a second time around do as well. I mean, you know, John Robinson went was at USC twice and yep. uh, didn't second time around didn't do as well first time. You know, um, but in this case here, Mac Brown's coming back with a national title ring on his hand uh, and a veteran staff uh, and veteran recruiters, uh, and very quickly has closed the gap with their neighbors to the south, and um, they are a we're bringing back 18 starters. Uh, this is going to be an interesting year. Uh, I haven't you remember an epic ACC title game a couple of years ago under a different staff, Larry Fedora, um, where North Carolina took him to the last possession in the ACC title game. Uh, this sets up to be kind of the same. Now, don't don't count your chicken for the hatch. That division that uh, North Carolina is expected to win the Coastal Division. Every team outside of Virginia Tech has improved, even Duke, uh, even though Duke got a long way to go. Right. Um, that entire division has gotten better short of Virginia Tech, and that's a whole nother conversation with the issues they're dealing with. We're gonna get to, we're gonna get to Virginia Tech. Okay. All right. Well, it's uh, we may extend your podcast a little bit, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, North Carolina, uh, they are set up to go. The schedule looks very favorable. They're number one game in divisions Miami they get right that in Chapel Hill yep um and the Hurricanes look loaded the bear as well uh they bring back Derek King um a question to see if he how he's going to be coming back from that injury that injury could be the best thing that happened to Miami getting him back another year uh or he may not be the same player that kind of injury not a lot of guys come back to 100 percent the same Let's let's talk about Sam Howell. Obviously, he's 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 played his this is it'll be a junior this year. He's played both years, started as a true freshman. A lot of people thought I think he was supposed to go to Florida State for a while. And then he changed at the last minute, went to Carolina with Mac Brown. Probably some of that Mac Brown uh recruiting, recruiting charm that he's known for. Um, he's done you know, he's progressively gotten better and better. And again, pe many people think he's the favorite for the Heisman Trophy as we head into uh Labor Day weekend. And justifiably, I will put my hand up and admit, nobody can see it right now, but I'll admit uh, Sam Howell has exceeded my expectations. Uh, he was the number one quarterback in the year of this, uh, in recruiting in the year he came out of high school. But most people felt, including myself, in most years, he wouldn't uh, have been the number one because it was a very shallow pool. Yeah. But he has come out on the field, uh, taken the quality coaching that Matt Brown's staff has given him, and he has taken it to loaded the bear, and he is – uh, he, I would rather face Wyatt Earp and the OK Corral than this kid right now. 
the, what he's got is he's got reps. He's played every play of every game for two years. So it's like, it's not like he's a first year starter. I mean, he's, he's gotten beat up a little bit. He's thrown the interceptions. He's had some great games. You know, he's lost some close games. He's been in the, in the, in the lion's pit with Clemson a couple of times. So he's most, been there in all the situations. Most importantly, if you and I've watched a lot of. Well, we're having a little technical difficulties with Chris. We've lost Chris for a minute. We'll see if we can get him back. But they have plenty to help out. Yep. All right. Let's. You, you mentioned De'Eric King. Let's go to Miami. Here's the other thread in that co in the coastal with Carolina. You mentioned De'Eric King back for a year, a sixth year of eligibility because of COVID and all that good. I, I know he had a, he had the knee injury mid mid last year, year two of Rhett Lashley, an important year for Manny Diaz. He's progressively getting a little better and better. But again, the Miami faithful they don't want to see eight and three. They're tired of that stuff. They want to they want to be in the mix to be in the title game. And they want to be in the mix to be in a potential playoff situation. Your thoughts? Well, uh, I tell you what, Manny Diaz, ironically, a Florida State graduate. Yeah. Uh, and when we were there. We, he was there when we were there. That's the funny part. Oh, don't make him sound that old, Jason. <laughs> but, but he is. He is. He is. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, Manny Diaz has recruited really well. Uh, he has he hasn't done what Schnellberger did back in the day, declaring I-4 South as the state of Miami. But he has kept a lot of those kids in Dade County home now, unlike some of his predecessors. Yeah. Uh, especially in defense. Uh, and that's going to uh, be tested because they lost a lot of depth on defensive ends uh, this this offseason. Yeah. And uh, it's concerning enough to – to me, it's always a red flag when I see a head coach taking over a position. Manny Diaz is now going to go back to calling the plays on the defense this year. Um but I think he realizes it's more so about how important this season is to him. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, he, he were, he's, he's answering to a fan base that is not patient. They're not known for that. Uh, they have high expectations uh, where you can argue it's been uh, on things that happened too long ago or not. Um, but they have high expectations and that's the job he signed up for um, the defense. I think the back end is is they're going to be a tough uh, to pass on. Yep. Uh, um, which has pass happy as football is college football is now. It's getting more and more so. Right. Uh, that that's going to keep them in every game. Uh, Derek Derek King uh, doesn't doesn't lose his sharpness from his injury. Uh, I think Miami is going to be right there. It's just that challenge getting through that game at Chapel Hill. Right. And that's now, you know that's you know we talk about it again. The, I, you, you'll, I don't have the schedule in front of me. When does that game happen? Is that more of a mid-season, late-season game? Well, that's uh, looking up right here and uh, looking at Miami, uh, the schedule here. And second here, pulling up. This is bad radio. Sorry, folks. But yeah, it's, it's my, my fault. I should have that. I should have had that ready to go. But while you're looking that up, got it. Miami has never been. Miami has never been in the ACC title game. That is hard to believe. Well, they've never won the ACC title for sure. And uh, for a program that has national aspirations, right? you know they're frustrated. You can see it and feel it. I'm looking right now, Jason, that game is on October 16th. For North okay, Carolina. so midseason. Yep. yep. So that'll give De'Eric King plenty of time, not plenty, but the time to get, you know, if he has some rustiness from the injury and the offense, you know, that with that stuff, 
he'll have plenty of time to be back in the mix as far as ready to go and all that. In the Miami teams of the great of the glory days, they've been great on defense, defensive line, offensive line, and they've had skill players. I mean, obviously every good team's that, but especially Miami defensive line has always been the backbone of their great teams. One key to that game before we move on, I noticed here Miami has a bye week going into that, whereas North Carolina has their revenge game against Florida State the week before. Okay, that's that's, that's, a, an that's important. That's an important factor to understand there. Uh, see if there's any emotion left for North Carolina going into the next week. Yep. All right, let's get to Florida State. Mike Norvell, year two. The, uh, you know, obviously the, the, the Florida State program has kind of been down and out the last handful of years with Willie Taggart and the end of Jimbo Fisher. Before we get to that, just your thoughts on Bobby Bowden, the passing of Bobby and kind of that whole, the, the, you know, his whole legacy at, at Florida State. And obviously we both have some connection there. Um, you know, w- what a life, what a, what, a, what a life, what a career, and uh, just what, what he's done for that campus and that community. Well, a uh, stat that jumps out to me, and I did not include this in this article that you can find at acc.net, uh, my memories about, but uh, that I discovered that stadium was there long before Coach Bowden, but he expanded 11 times during his tenure. Wow. That stadium was there before him, but he really did build that house. And we were the family that got to say it, to sit in it. And sure. um, I had my own dad that I wouldn't trade anything in the world for, but I tell you what, Coach Bowden was a father to all of us. He was a father of a program. Um, and even when and he, he had ups and downs, he wasn't perfect. Yeah, but he didn't run from it either, and that it makes you more of a man when you stand up uh, to your own faults. And um, he'll be truly missed. And Coach Norvell told him uh, a few days before, I, "I won't let you down." Yeah, Mike Norvell. Obviously, you know he, he's he's got an opportunity here. You know, obviously to, to rebuild the program from come from kind of the, the 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 downfall that it's taken the last several years. And you know, he's got good pedigree of, of a winning coach, but. It's about putting recruiting recruiting seasons together back to back, and more so for me, it's about player development. You you, you can get the th- four and five star guys there, the three, you know, but you got to develop them into good players, and that's one thing Taggart didn't do a great job of. Bowden always did a really good job of developing guys. It might take a year or two, but he developed guys to where they were major contributors with the football team. Three keys to coaching, uh, and I think Norvell has got two of them down so far. Is one is recruiting, get the talent on the on the roster two, player development. We can already start to see that happen. And the third is getting the players in position to win on game day. Right. Um, so those are the three components uh, that, you know, Nick Saban's got down. Most coaches, successful coaches have two out of three and Nor- Norvell is right there. Uh, right now in recruiting, they're number nine in the rankings in two, seven, four, seven sports, which is what I'm looking at right now. Uh, that puts them ahead of Clemson right now. If they're made to hold that, which I think they can do if they can get to that six and six happy spot record there, uh, they'll be the first team in the early signing period there with a losing record to sign um, to sign a top 10 class. So right. they're recruiting, including especially their ace recruiter, Alex Atkins, on the offensive line coach. They're, they are killing it, Jason. So I'm just telling uh, uh, Florida State fans, if you just get through. And ultimately – Ultimately, if you're Florida State, you got to find a quarterback. You got to find that dynamic quarterback who can be a Deshaun Watson kind of guy, a Charlie Ward kind of guy that uh, they've not had there in a little while. That, uh, you know, they had Jameis Winston, obviously, 
you know, eight or 10 years ago, but you got to find the, the trigger man who can be the, the fixer when the offensive line struggles, you know, their offensive line has been pitiful the last 10 years. Um, but you got to find that offensive. You got to find that trigger man that can be the difference maker for you. Absolutely. Uh, well, right now, McKenzie Milton uh, is maybe the best uh, transfer uh, in the country. Uh, and we'll see. Back. Yeah. We'll see how his injury, if he can be the same guy he was at UCF, you know, before the, 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 the devastating knee injury, you know, it's, it's an unbelievable story. If he were to come out and play well, it'd be a, a story of all stories during this college football season. No doubt. It is. Uh, even if he never plays it down though, he, he, the, he'll raise the character in the locker room alone. Right. That's where everything has to start. And that would, that alone justified bring him in, him in. Um, but you know, the quarterback competition, I'm telling you, uh, Jordan Travis, who is known for his running. Yep. All my sources say his passing has just improved immensely and he's pushing Milton on the job. And I guarantee you, Norvell will not hesitate to play the best guy available, regardless of how they came into the program. Yeah. I mean, and again, this is not a make or break season for Norvell, but you can't go, you, you don't want to be going three and six again. You at least have to be in the six, seven win range type deal to where you're showing progress to where the faithful in the, in the, in the community and the boosters aren't, aren't saying, Oh God, here we go again. So, you know, right. um, again, nobody's expecting them to be 10 and two, I don't think, but, it, but you, you got to show some significant progress and be competitive and don't get blown out by Clemson. You know, you, you, you can lose the game, but don't get beat seven, you know, don't get beat 65 to 14. Exactly. The key game. And I hate to make a, a week one game so important because yeah, the whole season behind Out to that. shoot, man. But the Notre Dame game, if they can stay close, Notre Dame's replacing a quarterback. They're replacing 10 starters on defense. Yep. Uh, if they can keep that close and they're the bulk of their recruits are having to visit on that game. Yep. It is so critical to look good in that game. Uh, if they can stay close, I'm saying like within a 10 point score, yeah. show proof, show proof of product That's and go from there. I mean, in heck, if you can pull it off, you look at a seven and five season, you're going to solidify that top 10 class and keep those kids in. And you're, it's, it may be the most critical game in Norvell's early, early part of his career. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. It'd be a national TV game, Labor Day weekend. You know, I think it's a Sunday night game, so it's probably a standalone game across the country. National audience. Yep. yep. So, and from a recruiting perspective, you know, again, there's opportunity to come play at Florida State early in your career if you're a big-time recruit, whereas when you go to Clemson, that might not be the case. You go to you even go to North Carolina, that's not as much the case. Of Florida, Alabama, you may have to sit, but, you know, Florida State, there's opportunity to play. Right now, right now you go to Clemson, it'll take about three years for Dabo knows your name. <laughs> all right let's talk about a couple of kind of off the radar teams give me a give me a team or two in the conference that you think could be a little bit of a pest that probably is not going to win the conference or be in the you know be in the title game but could give some people some problems well i got two right in clemson's own division uh i would i don't have a wolf howl to play here but i'm going to tell you the, the nc state wolf pack dave dorn has had them just off the radar for a little bit uh, you talk about a team that has doesn't have the roster Clemson has, but they have those kids that are just a notch below. And that game, as I'm looking at right now here, I'm telling you, at September 25th, 
they get through their game against USF, Mississippi State, and Furman. Mississippi State would be a tough game on the road, but they get Furman a week before they open up against Clemson on September 25th. Uh, watch out because uh, they, you know, they get Clemson right there in Raleigh. Uh, they get a couple wolf howls that go off every time they score. Um, and uh, they've given yeah. Clemson problems over the years. They've they taken have. Clemson to the wire a couple times in the last four or five years. No pun intended, but those wolves have been nipping at their heels for a, a while, and they yep. may catch them this year. Yep. Uh, the other one, and I think, is really sneaky and a little bit of a longer shot, but I think Boston College. I agree. Uh, uh, I think Boston College going five and five in the first year for Jeff Halfley. Yep. Uh, our buck, our Bucks listeners may know, uh, longtime Bucks listeners may know about, remember him as a defensive back coach here back in 2010 through 2012. Okay, he's been in and out of pro football and college football. He's in, he, so his entire staff. You talk about how uh, a staff loaded and ready to get the uh, blood out of a turnip. They're it. Um, and, and look for Phil Jerkovic. I think he's the best quarterback in the league that nobody's talking about. Notre Dame transfer. Um, Notre Yep. Came from Notre Dame. Yep. Yep. And um, I, I think they're uh, going to sneak up on some people. I, in fact, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a betting man, but if you see a, uh, a seven win over under on them, yep. Take, take the over, take the over on that. I like, I, I could easily see eight, nine wins on that schedule. I've heard a lot of good talk coming out of Boston college. I've listened to some different analysts around the country talk about them. And again, Halfley comes from that Ohio state. He comes from Ohio state, some of that pedigree. So he, he's accustomed to winning and knows, knows that culture of winning you know, rugged, you know, Boston College, you're not going to get the five-star athletes, but you're going to get the rugged kids. You're going to get the offensive linemen and, you know, just the really, the really tough kid who can, who can, is used to playing in tough weather, bad weather, things like that. Mm -hmm. And again, you're going to, I, I'm with you. I definitely think Boston College can be a threat to be a pain in the neck to the people in that, in that division throughout the conference. And here's where I always look for Jason on a team when they come back offensive line i don't care what scheme you run i don't care if you're mike leach or or nick saban or whatever the beating heart of a football team is that all yeah yep all right clemson clemson is uh we are talking clemson now let's go to let's go down to clemson south carolina no more trevor lawrence you got DJ Ugalele, however you pronounce that name, is the is the new guy there in charge. You know, he played sparingly last year. Obviously, he played very well at Notre Dame uh, in, the, in the Notre Dame game, which they lost, but he played very well. You know, lots of hype about DJ. I think he's going to be a projected Heisman candidate either this year or next year. Your thoughts on Clemson? The machine just reloads. Well, I tell you what, if I were Clemson, uh, I only have one concern coming in uh, that first four weeks because their quarterback room changed drastically this offseason. Uh, uh, two backups, one signed, was drafted, and has signed with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Okay. The other one is coming back from a knee injury and won't be available till October. Now, DJ's a big, big kid. He is yep. much different than, than his predecessor in that sense. Just as athletic... Um, not as fast a runner, but he's big and strong. But you may wince, Tiger fans, if he gets hit too many times, because if he has to go out to that out of that game, 
uh, any of these games early on, especially Georgia, right out of the gate. Yep. Um, things are going to have to get real creative real quick. Uh, that's one position that could throw things uh, into a tailspin for the Tigers. Massive game against Georgia to lead off this, you know, to, to kick off this season, you know, for both teams. It's not an elimination game from a title perspective, uh, national championship race, but, you know, it's obviously going to be a, a situation where you're going to be a, what a what a huge leg up you'll be in the playoff in the playoff uh, you know uh, committee committee's eyes if you win that game against Georgia in the event you in the event for some reason you were to get knocked off in the ACC title game winning that Georgia game is that much more critical where you don't have the automatic I won't say the automatic bid but you, it, by winning the ACC title they're going to be in the playoff if they were to lose that ACC title game to a North Carolina or Miami having that Georgia win in their pockets going to be a, could be a savior. Exactly. And the other way to look at it is uh, this game coming in for both those teams. Uh, you lose, you're not out. Right. But you pretty much have to take care of business the rest of the way. Correct. Uh, which is a harder road for Georgia clearly, but uh, the Tigers, they can't trip them. They have had some, uh, some landmines like Pitt two, three years ago. Yep. That blew them up. NC um, state had them on the ropes. Yeah, again, you got that NC State game three weeks later. I mean, yeah, you there's very little room for error when you if you come up short in that game. Yep, very, very, very good thought. Um, you know, obviously Dabo Sweeney. Do you think Dabo's a lifer at Clemson? Do you think at some point Dabo's going to say, you know what, I want to dip my toes in the NFL waters? Well, that's a decision you make. You don't get to go back. Active Spurrier. Uh, you don't get to go back. You didn't, you don't get to go home again. After. It's hard. It's very difficult. Yeah. Uh, but it's one life though. And you only get one shot at things and you don't take them that they pass. My thing about Dabble is, is I feel a sense of ownership from him. He has built this thing. Yep. This is his baby next to his own children. This is the most important thing in his life. Right. Um, and his, his thumbprint is on this program almost as much, not quite there yet, but almost as much as I would say coach Bowden. Um, yep. There are other coaches, great coaches Clemson's had before, including Danny Ford, but um, Dabo is Clemson football. Uh, he didn't put that rock there that they touch, but everything else there, his fingerprints are on. So it's, I wouldn't say never, but not I for a while. I can't see it, man. I just can't see it. Yep. No, he's got a he's got a, he's got a dynasty brewing in Clemson. If he can, if, he, if he's willing to stay there, you know, the next ten or fifteen years, I mean, he will be dynastic when it comes to his 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 resume, you know, of of, of all timers. Because it's a it's a very navigatable conference football wise. Obviously, there's some there's some talk of them merging or having an alliance with the with the Big Ten and the, some other things. There'll be some there'll be some conference realignments here pretty soon nationwide, but for right now, he's got an opportunity here the next, you know, handful of years to really, to really stomp, put his foot on everybody else's neck in that conference. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, it's their neighborhood. They're the bully. And they basically put out the marker for the last seven years, which nobody's been able to answer. Yep. Um, that come take it from us. All right. Two more, two more things. Get you out of here. You're, just, you're listening to Chris Bond, the fa uh the founder of accnation.net. We're, we're giving you a nice ACC preview. And uh, we got some other previews coming up of other conferences throughout on, on the Powers on Sports podcast as part of our college football preview. So definitely 
stick around. You're gonna hear you're gonna hear previews about the AC, or the SEC, the Big Twelve, the Pac-12, the Big Ten. So lots of previews for you as you as we head into college football season, which is about two weeks away. Two weeks Labor Day. Two weeks from today, we're playing football. So uh, less than two weeks actually. They're playing on that Thursday night before Labor Day. So. Uh, we are almost there. All right. You mentioned Virginia Tech earlier in the podcast. We don't need to get into all the disasters of Virginia Tech, but this is a make or break year for Justin Fuentes. He probably survived last year because of the pandemic and all that stuff because of not getting fired. But what a, I mean, how that's gone from Frank Beamer to Justin Fuentes, where it's gone, is really surprising. They've just really struggled and have not been able to kind of fix it at Virginia Tech. Your thoughts? Uh, well, Jason, I got to tell you, to, to get to the, straight to the point here, uh, he lost, I think he's lost the most important thing with all the transfers that's come out of that program. He lost the locker room. And when you lose a locker room, it's, it's only a matter of time. And yep. I don't ever want to see anybody lose their job. I don't know there, but I can, I've seen this before. You've seen this before. Uh, he got in real trouble when he lost the Tidewater region in the recruiting wars to Bronco Mendenhall. And um, that was something Frank Beamer held for years. That's where he got uh, Cam Chancellor, the Vic brothers. That's that that area was the foundation of of his dynasty at Virginia Tech, and Fuente has not been able to hold it. And when you lose your uh, your lose a your the relationships, the high school know, relationships, uh, and he he even had um, had the defensive coordinator stick around for uh, Bud Foster, right. legendary Bud Foster, stick right. around for a couple of years to help with the transition. And he still has lost that locker room. He's lost the fan base. He's, it's uh, I. It's really hard for me to see in a non-COVID year now, seeing him make it through. Right. And uh, he's one of the two coaches in this league, I think, uh, are, are, are maybe looking for other opportunities before it's over. Right. All right, so we've gotten to the end here. We've talked about lots of teams, lots of you know, uh, you know, scenarios and possibilities. Give me, a, give me a. You obviously, it sounds like we both have a heavy lean to Clemson is at least winning the that their division. Who do you like in the in the coastal? Do you like Miami or North Carolina, or is there somebody else? Much disappointment to Miami fans, and believe me, I'm not hating the Florida <laughs> State man. <laughs> As, as people can't see that he's wearing a Florida State shirt and a Florida State hat <laughs> as we record this. <laughs> well, you know, I come from a family of Miami fans. When some years I was wide left, my other years my name was wide right. So there, I'm used to it. I can handle it. Um, but I got to tell you, I mean, I give a 60-40 going into that game towards North Carolina. Uh, it's at home. There's clearly that advantage. Uh, there is more coming back on both defensive and offensive lines for North Carolina. Yeah. And I, you have two very experienced quarterbacks. So that's a draw there. Um, then it comes down to special teams and coaching. Um, uh, the special teams in uh, uh, North Carolina uh, are in the top 10 from last year. Uh, that was even COVID year. Yeah. Uh, in returns and kicking um, there had the edge there and, in a coaching matchup, it's impossible to pick against a guy who's got a national title ring and knows how to get it done. He's built a program before. He's doing it again. Manny Diaz, I love the guy, and I think he's doing a great job at Miami. Um, he's gotten past the point where they're winning the games they should win now, but I don't think this one's going to be in their their cards. 
So you got Clemson, North Carolina. Who do you like in that title game? Is Sam Howell going to win the Heisman Trophy on ACC Championship Night? I'll give you a prediction, Jason. Sam Howell is going to win the Heisman Trophy. Clemson is going to walk away with their eighth straight ACC title. Okay, there you go. I I think Sam Howell could have – he could feasibly have 500 yards in that game, but there's just so many blue chippers on that Clemson sideline. You just – until somebody knocks them off, it makes no sense to to pick against the champ. I got you. I got you. Well, Chris, man, been a pleasure, man. Keep up the great work. Check out Chris and his staff at accnation.net. Chris does some writing and then some other guys doing some podcast stuff on accnation.net. Keep up the great work, my friend, and uh, great insight, and we will talk soon. Thank you very much, Jason. Look to be happy to be on again sometime. We'd love to have you, man. And uh, keep, again, keep up the great work and stay tuned, folks. We'll have our next conference preview coming right up. Thanks again for listening to the Powers on Sports podcast. Remember to subscribe, rate, and review on whatever podcast platform you are hearing us tonight. Remember, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Sports. So we'd love to hear your feedback, comments, suggestions for future episodes. And again, thanks for all the support. Remember to share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. And we'd love to see you back next time for the next episode of the Powers on Sports podcast. Have a great week.